the biggest divide in this country right now is an urban and rural divide. And you see it in every state. You see it in every election. The truth of the matter is we should be able to connect with voters in those communities. The challenge is investments to do that will probably not yield success for quite a while. You have to stick to it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Scott Anderson, who is executive director of the Strategic Victory Fund, a network of progressive donors, and former executive director of the Committee on the States. He knows a lot about how progressive causes and organizations get funded. We talked about Scott's career and how the funding space works, as well as his current work targeting states where we need a Democratic governor to assure a fair election in 2024. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Scott Anderson at Strategic Victory Fund. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Scott, uh, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Scott Anderson, and I currently serve as the executive director of an organization called the Strategic Victory Fund, which at the end of the day is a community of national funders that are about winning critical elections, and but also very much on the ideological side of the spectrum. So it's it's more about what are we building in the long term? And how do we have long-term success in places? Um, my background, I grew up in the state of Florida. Uh, I live in North Carolina now, have for the last 18 years. Uh, first half of my career, I managed campaigns up to the gubernatorial level and really enjoyed that work. But later, I really became a little bit more interested in issues and um, and got very involved in education policy and education agenda and did national political work for the National Education Association and then came back to more of the political space in the whole idea of how do we organize donors. And so I was the first executive director of an organization called the Committee on States, which very much was about organizing funders around the country in each state to have both the short-term electoral view of work, but also how does that fit into a five, 10-year plan of what we want to achieve? Well, it puts you right in the heart of what I'm interested in learning about, and I appreciate you taking the time. And I'm going to just flesh out that background first a little bit more, if you don't mind. What was college and how did you get into campaign managing from there? (laughs) 
So um, it's kind of funny. I grew up in, in a very political family, um, more of an activist political family. Um, my wife always joked uh, in the early days of our marriage that she was always taught that you never talk about politics and religion at someone's dinner table. And that was the only thing that was talked about at my family dinner table. <laughs> sure. And so my parents very much kind of grew up in the mid 60s, kind of was their college and postgraduate years in the South. My dad is an academic, but he was also an ordained minister and got disillusioned with the church in the 1960s over civil rights and the war in Vietnam and kind of then went a whole different trek on the academic side of things. But my parents were very involved um, in every kind of issue that would come up, whether it was at the school board level or the national level, politics and activism was very much part of what they did. When I was in high school and in college, I was very involved in local political campaigns. I moved around a lot as a kid, but ended up my junior and senior year in high school in Lakeland, Florida, which happened to be the hometown of Lawton Childs. If you remember Lawton Childs, of course I U.S. Do. Senator, yeah, governor of Florida. And so, Walking was, Lawton. you know, Walking Lawton. So when I was young, I was involved in volunteering in his campaigns and, um, and uh, then I, right out of college, I managed the state legislative race and then kind of moved, kept, kept doing political work and went from there. So it was kind of been ingrained in me as kind of a, uh, from an activist family. You said you got as high as gubernatorial. What was that race? So I did presidential work too. Um, so I was, a, I worked as a senior advisor and campaign manager um, in uh, South Carolina for Jim Hodges who is a Democratic governor, um, North Carolina, uh, Mike Easley, um, worked for uh, Bob Graham and worked for Wesley Clark during their ill-fated presidential campaigns. And really prior to that, ran caucus programs, house caucus programs in Florida, and then helped help consult on other places as they were putting together their caucus programs. What was your role for Graham and Clark? Well, I was their state director in South Carolina. Now, Bob Graham, you know, being a Floridian, had a long background and kind of following his career and, you know, his organization and things like that. So he originally started by helping Graham in figuring out um, South Carolina and some other things that they were trying to do early on in that campaign. And then when he got out, there were a couple of us that he recommended and that we moved over to help Wesley Clark in the early days. That was in 2003. At that time, I really felt like that whoever the Democratic nominee was had to be someone who voted against the war. And so that seemed like a logical landing spot. What did you take from that work in the campaign space that you feel is important and relevant to funding later on? I've recruited people to run for office. I've, you know, kind of helped them, you know, late night phone calls and things like that. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who are willing to do that. And so probably the biggest thing I took away from it is the amount of sacrifice it took for people to put their name on the ballot and to be willing to put their family through really partisan uh, races. And that has only gotten worse, I think, in the last couple of years. Right. And so I still respect deeply the people who are willing to put their neck out there and to do that work. The challenging part to me, and, and it isn't an indictment on any one individual, but politics can be very transactional. And so there are decisions that 
people have to make that sometimes are a calculation of who do I lose by supporting this for this certain piece of agenda. And I'm a little bit more idealistic than that, I guess. Did you work at the office of the governor on the governing side? Throughout that part of my career, I would often roll in and out of official roles. And so with Mike Easley, I was a senior advisor and did policy and communication for him in the governor's office. Similarly, in Florida, I worked on the legislative side. I worked for the last Democratic Speaker of the House in Florida, but then would roll off and help run the caucus program. Got it. Tell me about that time in the NEA. So, I mean, the NEA was a great learning experience for me. Some of the people who I still work with today are in very close relationships. There is really nothing more exciting than to get up working on behalf of public school teachers and public school employees. And so you actually get to spend time with people who are members and people who are really on the front lines of education. So it was very, very rewarding. A lot of the work that we did or that I was doing was was about how do we engage them to be more political and to um, have impact on governor's races, U.S. Senate races, other places like that that are the real policymakers. We often were involved in federal elections, but the truth of the matter is the federal budget makes up like 7% of a state education budget. And so the real decisions were with governors and with legislatures. And at the time period I was there, public education was really under assault. It could have been the very core of my values is an egalitarian streak and believing that every child deserves an opportunity to succeed. And that begins with a quality education. And so I really enjoyed working on those issues and just as much advocating for those members. I had one parent in the AFT and one in the NEA, both teachers. So uh, a mixed marriage. Yes. <laughs> Did you, is it, do you understand the, the dividing line between those unions? I do. A lot of it's cultural, I think. You know, it's funny when I was a kid, um, I spent a lot of my childhood in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, and Duval County was an AFT county in the 1970s. We lived down the street from my elementary school. And so when the teachers went on strike, they had a lot of their meetings in our living room. My mom was president of the PTA and they had all their meetings right there. And actually one of the first grassroots campaigns I ever remember is as a kid, God, I guess I was in kindergarten and the public schools in Jacksonville Beach did not have air conditioning. The rest of Duval County schools did. And the argument was that, you know, we had a coastal breeze. Well, if you know anything about Florida, summer lasted till about late October. My mom literally went door to door raising money to put air conditioning in the public schools. It was the cool the schools campaign and the teachers were very much involved in it. When the teachers went on strike, they had their meetings in our house. I mean, it just kind of grew up in that kind of activism for public education. By the time I was in the fourth grade, we had air conditioning. <laughs> it shouldn't have to be done that way. It should be part of the. No, it should not. Yeah. Yeah. What's the founding story for the committee on, on the states that you were the first executive director of, as you mentioned? Yeah. So, I mean, the committee on states grew out of the Democracy Alliance, which is another national funder community. The idea was how do you bring donors together in each state that aren't just organized around a candidate, 
while they do a lot of candidate work, but like people who are going to be year in and year out involved in trying to make the state a better place. In the early 2000s, there were a couple of examples that have been written about in Colorado was one in Minnesota was another where these funders had come together and really began to push change in their state. I had talked to Bobby Clark about the Colorado effort. I assume you know him. I know Bobby really well. Yeah. And so like the idea is, and like I've said this and, you know, we took it from about eight states to close to 40 when, when I left and it's still working strong and like really helping kind of to bring people together. Is the Committee on States, it's still an active entity? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. very much so. Like a lot of these things, it's not something that gets a lot of, seeks a lot of public attention. And it's not because it's doing anything nefarious. It's just that their focus is how do you organize funders? And then the programs that those funders are supporting is really where the attention should be. But the idea is how do you bring donors and doers together and map out long-term strategic plans that will have a political element, that will have a 501c3 element, that will have a 501c4 element that looks at candidate recruitment, looks at research, doing research smarter, looks at how are we doing ongoing field and organizing, how are we doing voter registration, and then ultimately how do we have a pipeline of candidates and help those candidates be successful. How did you land that role? How did I land that role? Gosh. So when I was at the National Education Association, um, I worked for a guy named John Stocks, who was the deputy executive director, and he was very involved in the early creation of both the Democracy Alliance and Committee on States. So I had been around and, and watched it and really believe that in the concept, like this idea of getting beyond just having everything run through the party or the candidate, because if you don't have a good party and you don't have a good candidate, then you're missing an opportunity to do good work on behalf of a progressive agenda and kind of was a natural person to lead it because I had done political work. I had worked in a big organization doing national political work and understood how to build out state infrastructure. How long were you there as ED? I served as ED from 2013 to 2019. So, so good, six years. Good stretch of your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How big of an organization was it during that time? It, that's kind of hard to measure. Um, I think kind of the traditional way of thinking about how big an organization is or is how many staff do you have. It's never been a large staff organization or a large core budget organization. The impact on it was like, how did you, how did we, how, how do we bring donors together? And, um, you know, I think ultimately we were able to build these communities in about 35 to 40 states. I have that variance because somewhere between 35 and 40, those five were in various stages of startup, help them hire staff in each of those states and really kind of begin putting the pieces together of a strategic plan. It's a strange, but like just inevitable fact of our political ecosystem that there's this kind of parallel C3, C4 and party hard soft side distinction. Does that, how well does that work from your standpoint? I mean, if the regulations weren't the way they are, would there be any way that it would be separate like that? 
Well, I mean, a lot of it comes out of Citizens United. You know, the person who was a mentor to me and really helped me and encouraged me at Committee on States was Rob Stein. Rob recently passed away, was a giant in the progressive community, and, you know, really early on had identified how the right was building infrastructure in states, in that it had been an effort that started really in the 1960s and got smarter and grew and manifest itself in things like Americans for Prosperity and the Heritage Foundation and all these other entities and think tanks and how all of that comes together. On the left side of the scale, we had a tendency to move all of that into silos, right? So you had like the, the C3 foundation work and C4 work and the political work and There are legal firewalls and limitations on how they work together, but then there were just things that culturally were kind of separating people. Having run and worked on governor's races in particular, you know, when you start putting together a campaign and you work from election day back, it's almost like trying to win a baseball game in the eighth and ninth inning. And if you haven't done the work in the first seven innings, to put yourself in a position to win, then your chances of success aren't going to be that great. And so the idea is, is how do you get those different pieces working together so that you have a successful governor or you have a successful ballot initiative campaign or you have a successful fight on issues that matter? I mean, in my where I live now in North Carolina, you know, one of the big battles in 2016 and 2015 was around transgender bathrooms. You know, in, in, in that if there wasn't an infrastructure there, that might have been a two or three week story, right? But we were able to engage people and really turn a campaign on, on an issue that I don't think anyone thought would be a linchpin of that election and use it to talk about a lot more than just LGBTQ equality. I mean, it was about economic issues. It was about what kind of state we're going to be. If that was just left up to a traditional party campaign model, I don't know that it would have had the legs that it had. My sense is that these donor tables get a lot of credit for turning states like Virginia and Colorado in the right direction. But states have also moved the other direction, some really notably in the same time period. How important to that ultimate balance of power in the states do you think these efforts are? I think that they're important because it is the network of or structures that we need in order to win power and to sustain it. I think they fail if it's a very short-term vision, if it's only about how do we win this upcoming election. And part of that is the challenge of national funders, which can be feast or famine based on where you fit on electoral college map, right? But it is important for us to have people in Idaho, which we do, who are trying to move the policy debate in the state of Idaho or in Alabama, where there's a group of funders that work together. The challenge, I think, is the right has funded and resourced this for 50 years and are right now reaping rewards that can be traced back to documents like the Powell memo, 
and is manifesting itself in these massive lurch to the right from the Supreme Court. If we have just a short-term you know, view that we're going to fix this in two years or four years, I think we're going into the conversation the wrong way. Six years of your life running Committee on the States, what was kind of the nitty-gritty of that job? Are you recruiting donors? Are you running the staff nationally? What are you doing day-to-day that's helping build that infrastructure? It's recruiting the donors and recruiting the staff. The beauty of donor tables, we were really speaking to a frustration that a lot of funders had. Um, you know, they would, you know, they would see each other at, at a fundraising event where some weren't really engaged in politics at all. They were constantly being pitched around an electoral strategy and that that in and of itself felt hollow. And so how do you begin to kind of map out um, more than just give money to a campaign or to the party and we'll report back to you after the election on how we did? Obviously, in any effort that involves a lot of states, you're going to have some kind of distribution of how successful it was. Some states are going to do really well. Some states are going to do less well. What do you think were the characteristics of the states and the donor tables that made that distinction between the most successful and the least successful? A couple of things. There there needed to be a core group of people who were committed to the long term. In some states, it would be one individual and others, it would be a collection of five or six, you know, just kind of a, a core organizing group that those people need to have with them a veteran professional who understands how all of the different pieces of resources can be used and can be maximized and then have a plan that people are bought into that clearly articulates how every piece, whether it's the movement and voter engagement piece, voter registration piece fits into the election plan and fits into the longer term plan. And so, you know, the one thing I would say in a lot of our organizing meetings is that the only thing that's guaranteed in an election is that there's going to be another one in two years. I said that prior to January 6, 2021. So maybe I need to revise that, but, um, I hope not. Yeah, me too. But the habit is, is that you have a campaign and then everything shuts down. And like what we're trying to do is like, how, you know, what are we building and how do we, what are we leaving behind and how does it continue on in the States that have had failures, you know, where like, I think 2016 nationally was a failure and a lot of people were somewhat despondent. Right. Um, and so I, I, I know personally, I, I was afraid that we would lose a lot of the leaders in these States and quite frankly, the reverse happened where people were much more engaged and they felt like that they weren't investing in just one individual, but what they were doing, they were kind of doing for themselves, that they had skin in the game. And so just because we lost at the top of the ticket or lost in other races, people didn't walk away. They kind of doubled down and... I think that's part of the magic. I, mean, I always view the work that I do is part organizing and part political strategy. And really 
not as much on the fundraising side. Sometimes people often talk to me about fundraising strategies and the only strategy I know how to do is to do traditional organizing of a community. It just so happens the community we are organizing is the donor community. I can imagine why one would think donors would go to the sidelines after a loss that made him despondent, but actually it's probably more the case that they go to the sideline after a win. There was so much mobilization to get Biden to beat Trump. That was accomplished. Do you have any sense that donors have moved to the sidelines too much post-2020, or do you feel like we're okay in that arena? I, I, I think that the biggest challenge that we have right now is that donors are in a dark place. It doesn't mean that they've walked away but they really see the long-term threats to democracy. But that could be motivating them, right? It can be. It also, it, um, it is, and it, it certainly is motivating. There's a little bit of paralysis there of like, what is it that we need to do? When I left um, Committee on States, part of the reason why was post-Trump, you know, Committee on States is a 50-state strategy. And it's really important that we have a 50-state strategy but what really was clear is, is how do we need to drive resources into the core battleground states? Because those states haven't really been changing year in and year out. And to really drill down a lot, you know, with a lot more focused resources into those places, we have to do both. But the threats to, in the next decade that are happening to democracy are going to come through these states. I mean, we're already seeing it. And, you know, that's why, you know, our that's why our focus right now are really on just a handful of states. And I think funders are frustrated too with traditionally being uh, funders of party committees and not seeing, you know, the Congress being able to move legislation. There's just a lot of, lot of frustration that I know you see with the electorate that I think also affects the donor community. When you've been in the middle of all these discussions about the strategy around how to spend money, you must have come to some personal theories about what is the best bang for the buck that you can get politically beyond just like long term, as which you've sort of summarized it. What do you think is the best place or the best places when you advise donors about where to spend that? What do you think works? I think you have to have an ongoing in-person organizing effort in each state that is going to every community that is important. I think it's, it's you know, starting with base communities, communities of color, but then expanding beyond that, getting out of urban areas and into rural communities and really begin engaging voters. And that can't be just something that we do every even numbered year. It has to be ongoing. And a lot of that work is and can be funded by 501c3 organizations. And they are stepping into a lot of that space. We have to get smarter on research that the tools of polling are broken, at least from how we use it in the political space. And so how are we using more data scientists and engaging them to not only deal with some of the challenges with polling, but kind of get smarter with our data tools. And so data and analytics in each of these states tied to fields so that you have like 
some sort of a reporting back mechanism is really important. And then the third piece is, you know, we've got to be smarter about how we communicate with voters. And part of that is how are we communicating online? How are we treating digital as an organizing effort and not just a one-way communication? And I think probably the biggest revelation for me in the last five years is really understanding the challenges with how our side communicates versus how the other side communicates. That to me is one of the biggest challenges that we face. And so let me describe what I mean by that. In Virginia this last year, you can kind of see the march of Glenn Youngkin coming. And a lot of the people around the political circles would point to how we were outspending Youngkin two to one on TV and cable, right? And I would pull my hair out. And as you can see, I don't have a whole lot of hair. But the idea of that is preposterous because what's not taken into consideration is the for-profit coordinated communication structures that the right has built that Fox is a tentpole for, but includes a whole bunch of other things that are happening online um, that's spreading disinformation and is seeping into 50% of the electorate. So if you say, yes, we're outspending the other side two to one on communications, you're missing this whole other sector, right? And then the other part of that is when you look at how we communicate to voters, it's what I would refer to as a very disruptive style because we're wanting you to stop what you're doing and watch what we have to say, as opposed to engaging them in more of a two-way conversation. And to me, as we get into the next 10 years, getting out of, um, and this is much more of a party committee and campaign structure thing, but kind of getting out of only thinking about communications in that kind of one-way disruptive form will make or break us. When you think about all the decision-making about how to spend money, what were the areas that the discussions were most heated or there's the most difference of opinion, would you say? That's a good question. I'm trying to think of when we had a heated discussion. I mean, usually it was around, and I, I kind of push back on this, but like people feel like we're always starting from a standpoint of scarcity. And so when you're at a standpoint of scarcity, it is which tactic do we want to fund as opposed to what is it that we need to do? And so whenever there were debates, it was usually around base persuasion, base communication versus communicating to voters in the middle. I believe, you know, personally that you start with base communication and persuasion and then you build out and you don't treat treat it as an either or conversation because ultimately you're going to need both. But that's usually where the hottest conversations are out or the critique will be that too much resources is going to talk to and organize voters in the middle and not enough to the base. And I just find that to be a very limiting conversation because both need to happen and they need to be done really well. Did you have critics of how you ran committee on states? And what would they say if they were going to talk about you? 
I, I can't imagine. No. <laughs> <laughs> we did a lot of things at Committee on States that I'm sure were people were critical of. I think that I think one of the critiques would be that we were too politically or electorally focused, which to me was a bit ironic, kind of because I came out of the electoral frame and it was much more about how do we bring movement stuff into the political space. But I think there was always a tension or healthy tension around that. One of the critiques is that these donor communities are very white. And how are we lifting up race and equity into the conversations? And we actually spent a lot of time doing facilitated conversations of trying to kind of get people to understand that. But also on the donor side, the wealth um, disparity in this country is along racial lines. And, you know, and that's one of the many challenges I think that we have as a country. Those are probably the things that um, were, were critiques and critiques that we tried to really be responsive to. I assume you know Dimitri Melhorn? Oh, yes. Who's also been in the funding space and worked with Reed Hoffman, among others. Um, he sent out an email to some of the organizations he, that they funded recently saying that he's, I don't know if you saw it, probably you did, uh, saying that he's no longer going to fund things that are counterproductive, left-wing efforts that are boomeranging in his view or their view. What was your take on that? So Dimitri works for a funder and he's incredibly smart and competent advisor to that funder. I work in coalitions. Part of what we've tried to do is talk to people about how you will never be able to accomplish alone what you can accomplish together. And so how do we get bring people together and to think about long-term investments, but just also the short-term crises. And so there are things that I think you know, he, Dimitri may categorize as unproductive that I think need space and that need funding. I am a Democrat. And I want the most progressive Democrat who can win a general election to be president, full stop, right? I think it's okay to have voices on the left that are critical and still be still be okay. I don't necessarily see some of the things that he sees as counterproductive in that. I do think that Dimitri, well, take Dimitri out of the equation. I think that there's funders who are who have entered this space that have also really identified the need to bring over Republicans in order to save democracy. And so like, who are the, what I would call the non-MAGA Republicans that are left and how do we help provide them a home? And I think that's incredibly important work to do. I think that we have a lot of work to do right now in inspiring voters under the age of 30 that they can see themselves in, in the future that's ahead of them. And I don't think you do that by quashing voices that represent them. When I've talked to progressive young people, yep. which I do fairly often, and, I've, and some of the leaders of the groups that do that, I'm astonished by the dealignment from our party, uh, but I think both parties, it's, enormously different than it was a half a century ago for sure and it's been coming is it, it involves having to talk to them very differently i think it's interesting so i have i have teenagers girls and i listen to a lot of what they have to say the people who inspire them in politics 
are not the people who, you know, I I'm listening to on a daily basis or that, that are really in the forefront of leadership in any way. And they see a lot of the leaders as being old and out of touch. Are you talking about like the AOCs of the world? What yeah. You, like yeah. the AOCs, yeah. AOCs, but like, as a parent, I'm really sensitive to this because I, I really feel like that this generation of young people, especially the ones in college, uh, are all kind of going through like a collective grieving, you know, because of what, what COVID has meant to them and disrupting kind of their move from high school into college and young adulthood. You know, being inundated and understanding the complexities of what climate change is going to, how it's going to impact their lives and um, and they're looking for voices that are speaking out on those things because they have a real sense of crisis. You know, they don't they don't see a path to living on their own and pursuing a career or having a family in the same way that I think pe- kids people like me who grew up in the seventies and eighties did. Right? There was a poll that I just read that had showed Biden's numbers with voters under thirty, and I can't remember off the top of my head what the numbers were, but they were not good. And, um, and I think that that's speaking to that. And so like, who are, who are those voices that can engage those people so that they can feel like they're part of the solution? Climate change, COVID, and I think Trump too. There's something so drastic about him as a model and January 6th, everything else. It's discouraging. It's, disheartening. You know, it just is. I think they see it as the baby boomers and generation X just screaming at each other and nobody's really offering solutions. Some of those funders that we've alluded to, they come out of the world of tech. They big into funding technology companies, data, software. That's obviously my background. How much, if any, did the work that you looked at to this point involved tech solutions or where do you think that fits in? Where I am plugging in the most on tech solutions is, is really around understanding data, how we're looking at voters beyond just demographics, but kind of understanding values and psychometric modeling and clusters and things like that. Um, I think that that, that part of the work is incredibly important. Where do you think that's well performed or located, that kind of work? So there's a lot of different uh, communication, online communi- digital communication, other communication that we've been investing in, um, specifically in states, through a network of communication hubs called Progress Now nationally. And they have, in the states that we're involved in, have really gone deep in really understanding how values are more interesting to look at as far as trying to figure out how to communicate to voters than just demographics and voting history alone. So I always use myself as an example, right? Even though I like to think of myself as young, I'm a middle-aged white guy from the South who attends church regularly. There are assumptions that people would make on me just based on my demographics and a limited knowledge of that, that would probably lump me into a far more conservative place than I actually am. I'm very progressive. I'm very much believe in community and egalitarianism and things like that. And so really kind of then looking at 
what are people's values um, based on all kinds of different data sets and how do you communicate and reach those people isn't just important to get to me as a middle-aged white guy you know that lives in North Carolina it also is going to be really important to communicate to Latino voters people of color and understanding how we engage and motivate and move those people that kind of research and testing and pulling in you know data to understand that I think is really critical right now a lot of what you've been talking about really operates at the realm of the tactical more so than the big strategic. The difference between what the presidential candidate and the big politicians are doing and how they're communicating and the sort of the apparatus, the infrastructure that implements this tactically, sometimes I wonder about the connection there. I think there's a lot more power in a big strategic move sometimes by, say, the person running for president than in that field margin that we might be affecting. How do you see that, that world of connection between the big strategic and the tactical part of infrastructure, which is also important? From a strategic standpoint, I think the biggest challenge that we're going to face over the next decade rests in how the right has built information systems and communication systems that wallpaper their voters. That is definitely a tactical thing. And it's a huge one. I mean, like Rupert Murdoch has changed the world, right? Like, unfortunately for the worse, we on the left have taken a couple swings at, you know, the anti-Fox, but we haven't built it. And that's a big for-profit company with entire freedom to operate unregulated and to reach a huge number of people, right? 40% of the... What I would argue is until we bring in private equity resources to begin putting together those types of properties and to build out, it doesn't need to be Fox, but you know, begin building out communication systems that reach people, we're only going to be playing triage in states and around elections. But if they are winning by, uh, you know, like a giant dollop of disinformation, which, you know, is a good part of Fox, um, the dominant part of Fox. And I've rarely heard people on our side willing to go there. And I don't really want us to go there. And when I talk to people, you know, reputable reporters, they want to report factually to put it in the best sense. It's an unbalanced world of propaganda versus establishment press to some degree. Well, and I think that's part of the unbalance is that we have one that is propaganda and then the other that is trying to play things straight. And I'm not suggesting that you create another propaganda wing, but you know, the truth of the matter is, is people like you and I are reading the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal or whoever on a regular basis, the Atlantic, you know, things like that, all of which have paywalls. And what the what the right has built, whether it's through Sinclair Broadcasting, whether it's through Salem Media and the radio ownership, the different print vehicles that they have is a much more localized distribution network 
that is, you know, giving the high school scores, right? Giving the weather reports, but then is also infusing a whole bunch of propaganda that is pushing people further and further to authoritarianism. And if we're not figuring out how to build systems that pull people away from that, I think we're the next 10 years is going to be very dangerous. I I named the podcast Great Battlefield. It's out of a line from from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. But I think a lot about the way forces uh, like you've been working on in your career are arrayed. And I have yet to have a expert on our side say we have the advantage. But where do you think the advantage lies in the infrastructure between the right and the left, in your estimation? We have the advantage from the standpoint of the generation of voters that are coming online are much more aligned with us philosophically. That the disadvantage that they have is their audience is a smaller and smaller universe of, quite frankly, white voters that they have to keep energized in some way. They have the distribution networks to accomplish that right now. And I think that we are lacking in our distribution networks to be engaging people, not just um, engaging them in a way to tell them what we think about things, but that is a two-way conversation and engagement and to begin to think differently about what it means to get people motivated to participate in an election, right? And so if it's only around candidates or if we're in the conversation in the third quarter of every even-numbered year or if we're not helping to shape kind of with artists and entertainers and sports figures and others a worldview that is much more inclusive, we are at a disadvantage. I think that they've built systems that is largely around motivating on fear and resentment that is very powerful. When the South switched over from uh, Democrat to Republican, post-civil rights actions by Johnson and so on, you ended up to a very high degree with block voting by race. And we've seen that, especially in non-college educated white people, we've seen that kind of sweep through the border states, the Arkansas, the West Virginias, and just, and you see now Iowa even, like you see states kind of being taken off the table by white block voting. Do you have any prescription for how to undo that? Because that is crushing us. Yes. I've like lived in those communities and watched that separation. To begin to unpack some of it, in rural places that I'm familiar with because of family relationships and others, you don't really have people who are arguing for the progressive point of view. And and that is largely because people are completely surrounded, whether it is what they're hearing on the radio, what they're watching on TV, what they're hearing from the pulpit, a worldview that very much is about they're coming after us, right? And um, I think that in order to begin to change some of those dynamics, we've got to have partners that are outside of our traditional way of thinking about this stuff. I've been talking to a group of people about how do you get 
more faith-based people who may not agree with us on all of the issues on the left, but certainly are fearful of the direction that Donald Trump is taking the country, the white nationalism that's coming out of that, and begin to have more voices that are about engaging people on community and things like that. I think we've got to begin to really kind of lean into those conversations and have people who are in those communities that are working on that on a regular basis. The biggest divide in this country right now is an urban and rural divide. And you see it in every state, you see it in every election. The truth of the matter is we should be able to connect with voters in those communities. The challenge is investments to do that will probably not yield success for quite a while. You have to stick to it. And there's some people who are doing some really good work on that. Who do you have in mind? Well, people I would recommend. Uh, so Sarah Janes in the Rural Democracy Initiative is doing I've talked to her, yeah. Work. Yeah. Um, uh, there's some folks, there's a group called the Daily Yonder. I don't know if you've paid any attention to them. They're doing some fabulous work on this. Um, you know, there's... Uh, I've been really kind of interested in the work in faith communities on it and faith and public life has done some, some really good, good stuff on it, but that there are others who may be coming out soon that I think will be some unique voices in this too. You started this strategic victory fund uh, you mentioned at the yes. top. What is that and how's it going? So my mom always says that her son works for the vast left-wing conspiracy and that we're woefully behind schedule. So (laughs) you've been making me nervous with a lot of phrases like we need to start doing X, which seems like we should have done a really long time ago. Yeah, (laughs) that's part of what we do. Um, So uh, so basically the Strategic Victory Fund grew out of a partnership between the Committee on States and the Democracy Alliance. It's very much about how do we... um, invest heavily and build structures in the key battleground states. And so in 2018, that was very much about winning governors in the battleground states, which I think we were fairly successful in, although we were not as successful in places like Georgia and Florida, but were in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin and other places. Uh, in 2020, there were it was really about how do we fill critical needs and gaps in preparation for the presidential election and in the aftermath aftermath of the presidential election. And now we've been pretty more vocal than, you know, as far as in the public domain than in in the past on our theory, which is if you look at the 2024 presidential election map, if we were to lose the veto pin and the ability to sustain a veto in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, or Nevada, any one of those five states where we currently have Democratic governors, there will immediately be Texas-style voter suppression laws passed and voter and election administration laws. And so that for us to have a reasonable path to 270 electoral votes, we have to reelect those governors and be able to sustain a veto. That's the kind of work that we probably weren't able to do at Committee on States because it was a 50-state strategy. And so the idea was how do we build donors and systems in those states to be successful. And so that's a big part of what we've been doing. In the process of that, we're also kind of, you know, in co- regular conversations with 
you know, donors and doers about just the challenges of how we're running campaigns and running politics and doing this work and really doing a lot more of kind of long-term thinking and planning on how do we get out of the paradigm that we're in. And I think that's where some of the stuff that I've mentioned about communications, how we communicate, how we target people, how we engage people, all of that is critical. Those five states, boy, it rings true to me how critical that they are. What's your prognostication? Where do you think it's going? Well, you know, and again, this is on the, just on the purely political side, you know, we are, we are largely doing independent expenditure work in those places with partners. And so there's only so much that we will be able to do that, that the campaigns have to be able to run what they need to do. So part of what we're trying to do is get it within the margin, right? So that the campaign, once the campaigns begin to spend, um, that, that they're in a position to win and that we can just help fill gaps as we see them. I think it's a tough year. President Biden's numbers are significantly underwater in each of these states. We've spent a lot of time trying to understand why that is. And I think at the end of the day, people have, even our voters, have a lot of anxiety about all of the issues that they're being confronted with. And Joe Biden is not giving them comfort in his ability to kind of lead us through those issues. Part of that's age, part of that's, you know. It's uh, also just people being unhappy with him from, of course, the right, but also from the left. Right. Oh, right. yeah. No, and, I mean, his. And yeah. so hopefully uh, those people your, on the left can come home. You know, we'll see. Yeah. And, and a big part of it is, no, they, you know, at least on the left, people don't dislike Joe Biden. They just don't feel like um, he is able to pull us out of where we are. I was in focus groups this week, you know, people, he accomplished what we needed him to accomplish, which was to beat Donald Trump. I think that in each of the states, uh, the Democrats who are running for reelection um, are doing better than Joe Biden in those states. I think that the um, impact of the Roe decision or the Dobbs decision is energizing people, but not just the Dobbs decisions, the decision on guns, the decision on the EPA. I mean, all of that is beginning to really sink in with people. And so we're seeing a bit of a shift. And I think at the end of the day, the challenge is going to be, you know, we will be going into November with inflation at over 9%, you know, gas prices high, although they're beginning to come down. And, um, how will voters respond to those economic concerns? Traditionally, they go against the incumbent party, you know, the federal. Exactly. They so, so that's sometimes what hard. we're trying to do is, you know, and then the other part of it is in each of these states, they're going out of their way to, the Republicans are going out of their way to nominate the maggiest of the um, conservatives, you know, um, Doug Mastriano, these are scary times when it comes to the people who are running. I mean, I look at like in Arizona right now with Lake, Ron DeSantis in my home state of Florida, and how popular these authoritarian demagogues are. Um, and then you look in, in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano is uh, an authoritarian at his core um, and is and really wants to take away people's freedoms, whether it's freedom to marry, freedom of what books you can read, freedom of what you're taught about history. I mean, you know, you know, freedom to go to a grocery store without being shot, you know. Um, freedom to vote. 
freedom to vote. In the other states, um, uh, Pennsylvania, excuse me, Michigan and Wisconsin have their primaries in August. And, um, you know, I, the candidates that are left standing in both of those states are also very extreme. So, you know, I think that there's certainly an opening, but these are scary time for voters. And usually when it's a scary time for voters, the incumbent party takes the brunt of that. Yep. All of what you're saying, I think rings true. Like I said, do you think that it's grasped by the donor community that you are part of? I do. I mean, our donor community is a mixture of key labor partners and individuals. And I think that part of what we've tried to do is get them more in community with each other. And yeah, I think that they understand the stakes. I think that there are people who have dialed back their giving after Trump. And it isn't because they think that the, that we're in a better place, but the amount of harassment that they get by being big donors, including death threats and emails and things like that. I mean, politics has become a much more intimidating and violent space. And, um, and people's threshold for wanting to engage in it, um, you know, is getting a little bit harder right now. Which is only going to get worse if they don't compete, right? Right, right. And I mean, I'm very sympathetic to that, you know, Um, and, but at the same time, it's been really helpful to have people who represent, especially on the labor side, people who represent workers who can say to those funders, um, my public school teacher doesn't have the choice to walk away. You know, they, they have to live in a world where Ron DeSantis wants them to be sued for having a picture of their family on their desk. Uh, I've heard that some donors, you know, guessing or estimating that this is going to be a bad year, don't want to waste good money on races that they think aren't winnable. Does that make any sense? No, it does. Um, And I think that they're, I think there has been some pulling back from federal party committees on on some of that too, um, on the Senate side and the House side. Our funders that we deal with have been engaged. They are, have been moving resources earlier than ever before. Um, I think that it is too soon to throw in the towel on races. And there's a lot that's happened over the summer that needs to settle. But we should talk in September and I'll, we'll have a better sense of kind of where this thing is headed and kind of what people's appetites are. I think that to a person, people that we deal with are very patriotic, care deeply about the country, care deeply about the future, and aren't necessarily running away. They're just more of trying to assess where the best and smartest opportunities are. Do you have staff? We do. How many people? We have 12 staff uh, and then fundraising teams. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? I feel like I've shared too much. So, uh, especially in the committee on state stuff, but the, um, you asked me earlier about critiques of committee on states. I didn't mention this, but if I could go back to it, one of the biggest critics at times of the work of building state donor tables were state parties and state party caucuses. 
And, um, you know, a lot of the flashpoints on that were around a view that we were consolidating resources outside of them. And the, and the truth of the matter is that was a very short-term way of looking at it because a lot of the people who were putting money into the donor networks were people who, number one, didn't necessarily give to party committees or to caucus programs because that's primarily where transactional dollars were. And these were much more ideological givers. And then the second part of that is when people were involved in a community with one another and sharing ideas with other people about where to put money and weren't just on the receiving end of an ask for money, that they were much more likely to put more money into things over a long period of time because they had ownership of it. And so that was always a flashpoint with us as, as far as building out donor networks. It's been fascinating to talk to you. I really appreciate the generosity of your time. Is there anything else you want to say? No, no, I'm, I, you know, <laughs> whatever you need. That was Scott Anderson. Scott is at Strategic Victory Fund. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.